1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the BFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Jan Smits and Rachel Pels about the new book, Plan S for Shock, Science, Shock, Solution, Speed. Plan S for Shock, the open access initiative that changed the face of global research. This is the story of Open Access Publishing, why it matters now and for the future. Well, Robert-Jan, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here.
2: Absolutely, great to be with you.
1: So how are you? How was your weekend, Robert-Jan?
2: Um, relaxed, um, it was a very nice weekend with friends. Uh, friends came over for dinner, so I really took it easy. Uh, but then of course, uh, you know, uh, last night getting ready for the week, So there's always, before the week starts, uh, you know, uh, a couple of hours to prepare for the meetings that are coming.
0: And Rachel? Uh, Well, I had a great weekend. Uh, I went to Spain. I'm actually still in Madrid, um, (laughs) just on a little break. So um, the weather is gorgeous. I have been to the art museums. Yesterday I went swimming. Uh, It's about 34 degrees. So yeah, I've had a great weekend.
2: (laughs) Lucky you, lucky you. Yeah. yeah for sure
0: <laughs> so could you tell us about what you do in general as a as a job yeah um, well i am a freelance journalist um so I, I write a lot about science and higher education and research um, for different newspapers in the uk and europe as well um And recently I have been writing books, so that's, um, yes, Planes for Shock was our first um, book together, Um, but I do write other articles um, on a range of topics. That's me.
1: And how did you get interested in journalism?
0: That's a good question. Um, I think I always loved writing. Um, I think even from a really small age, I liked writing stories and I wanted to be a story writer. And I think as I got older, journalism seemed like a more um, uh, sensible uh, version of story writing, you know, a a career, um, which is quite ironic. Now I look back because journalism is a very um, (laughs) unstable industry, Um, but I really enjoy it. Um, Yeah, I went to university and I did um, well, I did my first degree in English literature and then my master's degree in journalism. And that's how I got into journalism from there. I started doing internships and things um, until somebody eventually gave me a job.
2: (laughs) And Robert? Well, I'm working uh, at the Eindhoven University of Technology where I'm the president. So the Eindhoven University of Technology is a um, a university, a small university, around 14,000 students in the Netherlands, in the south of the Netherlands, very much embedded in the uh, high-tech innovation ecosystem here in the region. And I'm there now for three years, uh, serving as its president. And before that, I worked for many, many years in Brussels, uh, where I was responsible for the European Science and Innovation Programme, so Horizon 2020. And I co drafted also Horizon Europe, the current programme, the multi billion programme of the European Union for Science and Innovation.
1: And what drew you to this field?
2: <laughs> Sorry, what is your?
1: <clears throat> what drew you to this field?
2: Uh, I've always been uh, passionate, first of all, by European cooperation. And uh, I really believe in the European project. It's important that uh, European countries stick together. Uh, and I think uh, the current situation which we see, the geopolitical situation, proves once again how important it is that we stick together as European countries. But also, I've always been fascinated by the world of uh, science and innovation and how science and innovation um, uh, is essential for um, um, realizing the transitions we are facing climate transition, energy transition, agricultural transition, food transition, fight against drought. So I've always been also very interested how science and innovation can really change the world.
1: So both of you have a wealth of experience uh, throughout your careers. So what would you say to our student listeners and maybe early career researchers?
0: Um, well, for any students, um I suppose my, yeah, my area is journalism. If anybody wanted to get into journalism as a career, um, I would say you have to... There's no sort of easy way in, really, <laughs> unless you know someone very important. It's all about experience. So write a blog, write for your local papers, and... Um, take an interest in the world around you, I think. And um, yeah, keep on top of the news um, until you find a, a sort of specialism of your own, I think um, it's the best advice I could give. But uh, yeah, it's not easy. And Robert?
2: I think um, for the world of science and innovation, if people want to become a researcher or a scientist, I think there's only one word uh, which is necessary, one thing that is necessary, that is um, um, passion. Uh, Passion for the fields in which you're going to do your research, passion for um, going into depth, trying to explore new frontiers, passionate for working together with other people, not just in your lab, but also at a global level, Uh, passion for sharing knowledge um, with others uh, and uh, trying to indeed have impact. So I think um, the the job of of scientists um, or working at the university is all about passion, passion for science, passion for innovation, passion to change the world. But it's a little bit also perhaps, uh, and and, uh, it relates to just Rachel saying, if you want to be a good journalist, what uh, is necessary?
1: Oh, I love it. (laughs) So your latest book is Plan S for Shock, Science, Shock, Solution, Speed. And how did you come to writing it?
0: (laughs) I think Robert Jan can tell the story. It's quite funny.
2: <laughs> it's a really. quite a funny story, indeed. Um, well, in my last year in Brussels, where I worked at European Commission, I was the open access envoy. So I was given an assignment to come up with a plan to uh, uh, change the, uh, um, the, the, the academic publishing industry and to move towards full and immediate open access. So in other words, to get rid of a situation whereby the results of publicly funded research were behind paywalls, and to uh, make sure that open access is the norm so that was my uh, assignment and when i uh, finished that assignment and uh, went back to the netherlands my home country a lot of people told me wow this has been such a, a you know journey you had such a change you was able to uh, create with your plan plan s you should write a book about it and uh, after I get so many requests and, 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 and people saying go for it. I said, okay, I want to do it, but you know, uh, I need someone who really writes quite well. Uh, that's not one of my best skills, uh, writing well. So then I uh, said, who can I contact? And then I went to, uh, immediately to Rachel because uh, when she, I was developing the plan S she was working for times her education and, and covering a lot on open access. So we asked her the question, Rachel, would you be interested to do this project? And uh, she said, uh, Well, what a coincidence! Because uh, I'm supposed to go to Mexico, to Mexico, <laughs> to uh, have a yeah, you know uh, uh, to work from there and to cover science policy in uh, in that part of the world. Uh, but now, due to Corona, I'm not able to go there. And you tell the rest of the story, Rachel
0: well yeah I actually sort of turned him down at first because I said no I'm going traveling I can't possibly have a book to write um I thought I was going traveling in March 2020 and obviously that didn't happen um but it was really you know it was a shame that I am not living in Mexico but I think it was fate almost because it meant that I did have this time on my hands and I was able to get into the subject and really work hard on the book. Um, yeah, it, it was um, a really attractive offer. So I was at, it was sad that I couldn't travel, but I was at least pleased that I didn't have to turn this down. Um, yeah, it worked out for the best.
2: And it's also quite special how we worked because we never met physically. We always worked online. Uh, While well, drafting the book, I think it's also quite unique that uh, there are not many people who write a book together without really sitting around the table. Uh, everything had to be done online because of the COVID nineteen crisis. Yeah, so that was also quite unique to work mm, in. That.
0: Yeah, yeah, lots of Saturday morning phone calls, checking in, um, uh, lots of WhatsApps and emails, just um, keeping on top of the book. And yeah, we didn't even. We didn't even Zoom face to face much because I was doing so many Zoom calls at that time. Um, so it was nice. <laughs> it was a bit strange, a different way to write a book. But um, yeah, it worked out.
2: It worked out fine, but it's always risky because personality-wise, you don't know what is a match. Uh, So, I mean, if one is very impatient and the other is, uh, you know... So it's also, you're lucky, I think, that it worked out fine also from a personality point of view because uh, it could have turned out in a different way if you just don't have that match, if there's not this chemistry between you if you embark on such a big project like writing a book. So it worked out fine.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's true. I think um, we were quite lucky, but also we were both really passionate about the project and getting it done, um, which made a huge difference. If one of us had been um, less interested or, you know, had other things on uh, that were more important, I'm sure Robert Jan had lots on that was important, but, you know, he was still very happy to push ahead with this. And I think that's, that really helped to keep the motivation going at a time when we couldn't see each other and, and talk about it face to face.
2: Yeah. And we even had to celebrate when the book was published. We even had a uh, an online cocktail champagne at both sides <laughs> oh, wow. the the to celebrate the that the, the book was there finally. So even that we did online. Although I still hope that we can one day do it physically. You know, go for a very nice dinner and have an extra glass of champagne to celebrate uh, the, the presentation of the book. Yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely. Some Zoom teenies to celebrate.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, what a result you got. So let's dive into the book. And can we start with a very basic, so we know that everybody knows what we're talking about. Could you explain to us what is the scientific publishing of the research and how does it differ from the normal publishing that people might be used to, like newspapers or books?
2: Well, that's one I go to Rachel.
0: Um do you mean that how is it different in terms of um, the way that the book was written or or how is scientific publishing different in general?
1: Yeah how it is in general.
0: Ah I see yes Um, well scientific publishing um, it's quite a strange system as a as an outsider someone who's used to writing um, you know for a newspaper or anywhere else Um, it's quite unusual I think because um, scientists will work on a project, um, they may have a grant to be doing their research, and then eventually they will write a paper and they will publish it via, so traditionally they'll publish it um, by sending it off to, um, submitting it to a journal, an academic journal, and the journal will either Publish it, say yes, great. After some edits and peer review, and put it behind a paywall. Or they, if it is um, another model. So this is it's, I'm trying to give a very basic overview, hmm. but it's quite a complicated system. So traditionally, um, yes, the the power was very much in the journal's hands, and they would um, they will publish the stu- the article if they think it um, merits it and put it behind a paywall. So then. You can only access that work if you have a subscription to that journal. And that is the basic overview, <laughs> yeah.
2: and that's why when we often uh, uh, we want to go onto the internet and to look for certain things, a disease you want to know more about because a family member has it, we constantly run, uh, you know, across those into those paywalls. Say, oh, you can only read this scientific article further if you pay so much money. So uh, that is why the system at the moment is as it is. Um, and hopefully it will change and uh, this changing at the moment at a rapid pace because of plan s but the system is very much indeed as rachel it uh, um, presents with as a consequence that if you as citizen who uh, is was you know paying taxes uh, and the taxation is of course the basis for a lot of scientific research if you want to get access to the results of that uh, taxpayer's money, uh, scientific publications, you are constantly running into paywalls and you have to pay a fortune in order to get through a number of articles, for instance, related to Alzheimer's or to dementia. Mm,
0: I think you've given a better overview than I did. I've I've gone in too deep with the system. (laughs) It's it's a problem because um, it's not only... The system assumes that it's only academic researchers who have these subscriptions who want to access the research, but it's just not the case. Um, People who want to access scientific research are the taxpayers, um, students who want to learn more and they're in school, people who live in um, other countries maybe who don't have much access to um, information. So it's a very closed system and, and
2: that's what needs to change.
1: So, what is then Plan S, and how does it address uh, these issues?
2: Well, Plan S was um, and is all about uh, breaking down these barriers and making sure that the results of publicly funded research and, and the results are scientific publications that they are free to read for everyone. And that is of course a huge break with the past because Rachel just explained that most of the scientific publications until now are published behind the paywalls and that you can only read these articles if you pay a lot of money and um, open access and plan s is all about changing that system and to make sure that the scientific publications coming out of publicly funded research are available for everyone immediately not after embargo periods and not with having to pay a lot of money so that is quite a change of the traditional system which we all know in academia and which have been in for existence for many many years
1: so many of our listeners would have thought that uh, scientific research has been published for more than 100 years. And why only now do we start thinking about this access uh, for basically everybody?
2: Well, I think it has to do with, uh, first of all, the digitization uh, the digital technologies, which um, make it a quick distribution of knowledge uh, possible. And that was, of course, not 15, 20, 30 years ago. So digitization has really um, um, changed the, the film industry, uh, the music industry. And everyone thought that also the academic publishing industry would uh, change because of digitization. In other words, that uh, we would go to a very quick dissemination of scientific knowledge. But that did not happen until Plan S was presented. Uh, and uh, we can later on explain why it did not happen and why Plan S was necessary.
0: Yeah, there's a very... Um, we go into detail in the book about... Um, the, a bit about the history of academic publishing. And I think that also helps to explain the reasons why the system is like it is. It's, um, you know, it's it's many... It's not just 100 years. It's a couple of centuries of... Um, very insular um, workings between small groups of people. And it has happened that, um, you know, the publishing houses are the ones with, have ended up with the power to um, control which information is, is published, um, which is, yeah, there's, it's, it's a very sort of long and complicated
2: history, I think.
1: So who does Plan S involve in terms
2: of stakeholders? Well, the idea was that if you want to change the system and uh, you need to really mobilize the funders of research, they are the ones who holds the, uh, the, the key to the transition and to the change of the system. And for many, many years, uh, these funders were not taking their responsibility or were not mobilized to uh, push through the change because the politicians said, oh, we want to have open access. We want that the uh, results of publicly funded research is immediately available and not behind paywalls. And then they said to the science community, and now you, you go for it and do it. And that was, of course, very difficult for the science community to realize because they were so part of that traditional system, which Rachel explained just quite well, and that they could not change the system themselves. Even if there were have, even if there were communities of scientists um, and, and, and movements of scientists who were really pushing for open access, they did not have the leverage in order to change the system. So what we did uh, when we started uh, developing Plan S is to mobilize and to create a coalition of funders, funding agencies in the UK, in France, in Scandinavia, in the Netherlands, but also the Bill of the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust in the UK, to join forces and to make it clear that if you get a grant from any of these science funders, you as scientists receiving that grant can only publish in open access and no longer uh, behind paywalls and no longer with embargo periods. So it was the idea of creating a coalition of funders who set the rules of the game, the rules of the new game, whereby it was very clear if you get a grant, you cannot publish behind the paywall, you have to publish open access.
1: So can you call the Plan S uh, like a reform in publishing?
2: I would even call it the revolution of uh, publishing, (laughs) Uh, a revolution, a game changer of a model which has been existing for, for many, many years. Uh, where scientific publications were hidden behind paywalls for a happy few who could afford it. And we're looking out a lot of people from getting access to knowledge, developing countries, but also of course uh, the laymen, the, the persons who go on the internet to look into certain things, to look for certain things. So I would call it even a revolution of a system or an accelerated a transition which should have happened years ago because of the digital technologies, which allow of course uh, information to be disseminated so quickly.
0: I would agree. Um, I think it's also a reaction against um, the injustice of a system which is controlled by pretty much five um, very, very large publishing houses. Um, I, the latest of stats that I've seen, um, they're worth collectively $19 billion. So that kind of gives you a sense of the scale of um, these publishers um, that are controlling um, the publication of research. And I think it's fair to say that researchers are just a bit fed up up with that now and ready to to shift the system um, to a much more fairer um, way of working.
2: But it was of course the funders who had to take a responsibility. And um, creating this network of funders was uh, not that easy. Because not a single country, a single funding agency said, well, you know, we're going to do it all by ourselves. Because if suppose that the UK would make everything open access, then of course, and the rest of the world not, then of course the UK scientists will be at a disadvantage and also the UK taxpayers. So you had to really create a network of funding agencies, a real coalition from different countries in order to change the system and to flip the system. And that was, I think, the biggest uh, challenge uh, we were facing when we were developing Plan S, is to create a network, a coalition of funding agencies, strong enough to make the change.
1: And researchers were generally uh, generally in favor of this uh, reform?
2: Well, uh, they were quite mixed. Uh, There were, as I mentioned earlier on, a group of scientists who really are passionate about open access and really were pushing for open access. And they formed, of course, the core of the open access movement for the last 30 years. So there's a small group which are really passionate about it, but there's also a a big group which um, is, uh, you know, quite comfortable with the ways things have been working. And the main reason is not only that, uh, you know, the system uh, for them was relatively straightforward. They uh, uh, wrote an article, they sent it over to um, the the, the commercial publisher for a journal, and they took care of everything, the formatting, the peer review, and it was published. So these individual scientists, they did not see the costs because the cost did not go to them. They went to the academic library of their university, which has to pay a fortune for all the subscriptions. But there was another element which makes them feel very comfortable, uh, certainly for the successful ones, uh, whose articles got uh, published. And that was the so-called journal impact factor. And that as long as you published in these uh, so-called high-impact journals, these prestigious journals of Wiley and Elsevier and all the others, then you would be very well seen in the international rankings of scientists and your career would be made. Uh, So um, a lot of the scientists did not want to get out of that system because their whole reputation was linked not so much to what they published but to where they published. And that was, of course, why quite a number of them were opposing Plan S and opposing the system because uh, this would, of course, have consequences for their reputation, as they would call it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think it's um, it's interesting as well. And um, the more that I looked into this, um, this big question of why hasn't um, why hasn't open access um, fully succeeded yet. Um, it seems clear that there is a lot of discrepancy between different subject areas. So it's no secret that um, in chemistry, for example, traditionally, um, they researchers who are chemists are less inclined towards open access. I think for cultural reasons, almost it's it's just not common um, within their circles. On the other hand, um, people who publish work about physics have been publishing their work online for free for years already. So it's it's interesting. There's little different... Um, different sort of areas of academia and with slightly different cultures and approaches. Um, So that's quite difficult to tackle, um, as I'm sure Robert Jan has found.
1: So how has the pandemic um, sort of bring this publishing into the forefront of our sciences and especially in the mind of our community?
2: Well, when COVID-19 started, of course, uh, the big challenge for our society as a whole was to come up with a vaccine or the cold medication. And that's why um, the scientific community was really encouraged to uh, do research and to come up with solutions. Um, and there, what you saw immediately is that all the information, all the knowledge that was generated, all the publications were immediately shared in an open access way. And that even the traditional publishers work with these traditional journals and work with paywalls, even they opened up the whole system because it would have been immoral if we would have uh, um, published the results of, for instance, a uh, groundbreaking uh, work on um, on COVID-19 behind a paywall with an embargo of 12 months. Right. So open access became actually the rule during COVID-19 to find quickly a vaccine and a solution. And uh, we know that one of the reasons why we were able to develop vaccines so quickly was exactly because we were sharing information on a daily basis between scientists and we did not hide things behind paywalls. So from that point of view, COVID-19 was a game changer as well. And my uh, uh, point now is, let's now make this the new normal, not just for COVID-19, but also for the agricultural transition, for droughts, for floodings, for research on uh, uh, climate change, for the energy transition. So let's make open access, the sharing of knowledge, the new normal, because COVID-19 has shown the power of sharing information, the power of open access. And let's now not go back to an old system, where we lock things behind paywalls for the happy views.
1: And during the pandemic, also another concept uh, sort of got uh, uh, in front of our eyes, which is the preprints. So, Rachel, maybe could you, could you introduce what are preprints and even what they are not?
0: Hmm. Well, preprints are effectively um, when a researcher uh, or a research group have finished um, writing up their findings into an article, They can publish it online on on an online platform. It might be their own university's platform or um, another independent one. And the idea is that it's not been um, peer reviewed. It's not a complete um, perfect work, if you like, Um, not always anyway, but they want to get the information out there um, quickly. So it goes online and that is a preprint paper, essentially. Um, and it's effective because it means that I think, um, so one of the arguments, um, in the past against publishing work, open access was this idea of, um, well, you need to somehow copyright the work and make it, um, you know, official, but actually preprints are really interesting because once you have published your work online, there is. You know, you, you. There's a date stamp, there's a marker, and that in itself is a kind of form of copyright. You are sort of showing the world, you know, I'm the first person to discover this right. X Y Z. Um, and from there, sometimes people will um, then send it on to another journal, um, which the journal may peer review it. It may get published in that journal as well. But, um, but yeah, preprint is like a, a first uh, version of
2: the manuscript, if you like. And it's interesting what Rachel said earlier on, is that there are certain communities like uh, physics, in which sharing preprints and doing preprints is quite normal, whether other communities, scientific communities, or disciplines where this is not normal. And when we presented Plan S, there, there aroused a huge debate between these different disciplines and say, you know, why can't you not work like uh, um, the, the community of um, uh, physics, who are already used to sharing uh, preprints and for uh, working together by sharing information early stage? So um, Plan S also led to an interesting debate between different science communities uh, on, for instance, a topic like preprints. So
1: one might think, why don't researchers just shift to preprints and just publish it like this?
0: Hmm. Because of the general impact factor, I believe. It's this idea of prestige and um, it's still prolific in universities everywhere, really. Um, the, the sort of the idea that if you get a piece of work published in a highly ranking or very um, elite um, journal then you are somehow a better um, better scientist which we all know is not true <laughs> but it, it's, it's very hard for people to shift away from that idea that in order to be recognized you have to have that stamp of approval from some of the big names in, um, in academia and, and publishing
2: yeah, it's at the moment one of the big debates um, in universities, uh, not just in the Netherlands where I am, but uh, in Europe and I think even globally. That's a, a discussion about rewards and recognition. At the moment in academia, in the university, you only making a career uh, determined on the basis of your number of publications uh, in these so called high impact journals. That's what counts. You are not making a career if you're a fantastic teacher. You're not making a career if you're providing scientific support to policymaking, if you're finding patents or if you're setting up a startup, or if you do good science communication. There's only one metric that is used inside universities or most universities for your career to be determined, and that is the journal impact factor. And that's, of course, something very bizarre, because if I go out here in the streets and I stop someone and said, what is the role of a university? Well, that's to teach, to teach students. Well, okay, fine. And, and, and what should people then be rewarded who teach these students? Well, the quality of their teaching. Uh, but that's not how it works in reality. In reality, it is all about still your number of publications in the so-called high-impact journals that determines your career. So in order for open access to succeed as well, there is more needed inside the universities, a new culture of new rewards and recognition.
1: Fascinating that this publishing is so intertwined with, with all of these different factors. So do you think it also requires sort of revolution and reform about, uh, about in how we think about research and uh, rating research?
2: Absolutely. And that was one of the fascinating debates I had when I presented Plan S with certain scientists who were against uh, Plan S. They said one thing, and i never forget that. So I was in a debate which I had on the television. They said, uh, well, you know, with Plan S, you will kill international cooperation because, uh, you know, we can't work any more than as Europeans with uh, Chinese and Indian researchers because we cannot publish behind paywalls in the high-impact journals. That will not be allowed and because we can't publish them together because the Indians and Chinese want to publish in these uh, prestigious journals. Therefore, scientific cooperation globally will completely, you know, stop. And I said... I'm very surprised by that. I always thought that scientists work together at global level to extend the frontiers of knowledge or to find solutions for some of the grand societal challenges we're facing. If you now tell me that scientists are not working together anymore at global level, if they can't publish behind paywalls, then we need to have a serious debate about the role of science in our society. Because I would think it's a very pathetic thing that's going on then.
0: I think it is really interesting and it is only um, in the last few years that there does seem to be a complete shift in attitudes and I think it is generational as well. Um, new generations of researchers especially are much more, um, you know, they don't necessarily approach their research in this um, individualistic way. Um, it's its seen, you know, there is a recognition that the point of research is to share findings to share discoveries about the world we live in and that's a team effort um, whereas i think years ago and that you know dating back to the very very early days of um, academia um, it was much more of a an egotistical thing maybe you know the the lone researcher working in his lab and discovering um, big things in secret um, that's very much outdated now
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially younger generation, uh, we really regard research as a, a sort of community service and uh, yeah, just just like you say.
2: Mm. Yeah, so it's a new, indeed, uh, and that's why also we hope that uh, open access, uh, not only just because of Plan S, not only because of digital technologies, but also the younger generation, which is more, I should I say, into sharing, into having a contribution to society, Work on sustainability to make our planet better. We hope that that will altogether lead to indeed a complete change into a new world in which knowledge, which is generated by the public purse, is no longer behind paywalls with long embargo periods, but just shared, as we have done it during the COVID nineteen crisis. Here.
1: So, what challenges and downsides could the plans bring? For example, can it uh, inspire predatory publishers?
2: Oh, that's an interesting one you, you mentioned, because um, when we were presenting Plan S, there e- emerged, of course, in a, in a row about, oh, you know, open access is equal to uh, predatory journals. And that's, of course, not the case at all. And Plan S is also quite clear that you can only publish in the high quality and uh, certified open access journals and platforms and not in predatory journals. But the link with predatory journals was very quickly made. And you know who made those links immediately in order to decriminalize uh, Plan S and to make sure that it would not get off the ground. Uh, so I always, I always don't, don't like it at all when people immediately, when we talk about open access, start talking about predatory journals as if they are the same. Uh, no, this is a completely different leak uh, which we talk about.
0: I think it's safe to say that predatory journals um, in the global north, so Europe and North America especially, um, they're really a minority and it's not something that most researchers um, sort of understand or get on board with. It's just, you know, like getting a silly spam email in your inbox that you can ignore. It's not like um, people are confused about where is a reputable place to publish open access and where isn't. Oh, that's um, to hear, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is sad. Unfortunately, it is, um, I understand, a bit more of a problem in the global south. So um, I think there are some websites that probably um, they prey on researchers um, in developing countries that maybe don't have um, the same resources for publishing. And, you know, that that is a problem. But again, it's most researchers, they're aware of this. It's um, they're not stupid.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely right. You're fully right. But I mean, that's why I say I was always getting upset when people immediately with all about open access, you know, come up with predatory journals and make the association of the link because uh, this is not, I think, uh, the case. Uh, each serious scientist who wants to publish his or her article, of course, will look very carefully at the publisher, at the journal, at the platform where they're going to do it. And if you don't do that, you just go for... Um, an organization you don't know, because this organization sent you a mail that they can take care of it for a certain amount of money. Well, then of course uh, you're, to be quite frank, you're not then uh, taking your responsibility as a scientist. Yeah.
1: So, what response did the publishing industry have to this plan?
2: They were <laughs> shocked. Um, I think when the, the big commercial publishers were shocked when uh, we came with Plan S, because uh, I think first of all. They thought it would never happen that a group of funders would get together behind a plan to change the system for once and for all. Uh, it's also quite a brutal plan. Uh, they also did not expect that. So I think they were shocked. They were surprised. They did not expect that. Uh, also because uh, the five big multinational publishing houses have a very strong position in the market. They thought that there would be also much more position from the traditional science community uh, against Plan S. So I think they were taken by surprise and they had not expected this at all. And uh, they thought it would blow over or, uh, you know, uh, perhaps exist for a few years and then, uh, you know, die out. But you probably heard that last week also Switzerland signed up to Plan S. So the coalition is still growing of funding agencies. And uh, for me, the point of no return is there. This will be concerning after COVID-19 where open access was the, the normal, the new normal, I think, uh, it's there to stay.
0: Yeah, but certainly... Interesting. Um, I, I for the book I interviewed um more than 60 people sort of working um at funding agencies and in academia about their their attitudes towards the those larger publishers, and it's fair to say there's quite a lot of um, animosity. People are um don't feel very warmly towards the likes of Elsevier because they you know these are not my words they're other people's words they are seen as these sort of big bullies in the industry um with a lot of money and a lot of power um but what's interesting and i think kind of proves how powerful plan s really was as a concept is the these big agencies like Elsevier. their reaction you know they didn't just ignore it they were very much um I should say they were very much um, I think trying to put Robert Jan off sometimes or put other researchers off this idea of open access making all sorts of business arguments and that to me suggests they realized that it is um, a threat to their business model essentially so you can understand why these companies were maybe a bit scared because they've worked in one particular way for decades and here comes an idea that's possibly going to change their business model, maybe impact their profits. Um, you can see why as a business they would um, react against that. But that said, you know, it's for most of the larger publishing agencies now, it's, it's sort of water under the bridge. They are transitioning um, to provide open access models of working. And it just goes to show that, you know, I think communication and, and talking through these things um, with them, like Robert Jan did, has, has really paid off.
2: Yeah, and that's why it's important, Rachel, we keep it on the agenda. We keep on talking about it uh, in in podcasts, on television, radio, that we don't go back to the old system. uh, Because you put it out uh, quite clearly, Rachel, this is an extremely profitable market, uh, the old way of publishing behind paywalls. Uh, The market of scientific publishing is billions of euros per year. Um, some of the uh, state traditional journals make enormous profits 20-30% uh, of which Walmart and Microsoft and, and, and uh, can only dream of so from that point of view it's an extremely attractive business and has been and it still is for the traditional publishers with their traditional journals. And I think they will do everything to continue that system as long as it's possible. And that's why they came up also with the hybrid journals that may be too technical for uh, our story, but um, at the given time, the traditional publishers came with a kind of a, a new type of journal, the hybrid journal, which is partly subscription and partly open access to facilitate the transition. And the whole idea of them was of course, as long as possible, as I uh, describe it in the book, to milk the cow and to uh, earn money uh, over the traditional way of publishing, because that is what it is. It's a big cash cow for the uh, five big multinational companies who are dominating this market. It's a big cash cow and don't think that they will let go of that that easily. These are all companies which are mostly on the stock markets, and shareholder value plays a role there. So uh, let's be clear, for them it is essential to, they try everything to keep, of course, to that traditional business market, even if, and we see that, thing got happening under the pressure of the funding agency, but also the science community, that the things are changing. And I think the point of no return is there. Still, we are not there yet.
1: So how widely adopted is Plan S now, today? <laughs>
2: Is it 28 it, uh, countries? Yeah, absolutely, 28 countries. Um, uh, I think if you look at Europe, it's very, very well covered. Uh, China and India have also made it quite clear that they will not uh, um, actually continue with its traditional way of uh, scientific publishing. They also want to go open access. We have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the United States. Uh, we see in California, the university system there, embracing open access, uh, very much embracing the principles of Plan S. So I think um, it, it, it's, 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 it's in Europe, mostly uh, uh, say 80%, I think at global level, perhaps much less, but we still are not there yet. And we need to keep it on the agenda. We need to keep on talking about it. We need to get more funding agencies that explicitly sign up to Plan S to complete the journey and to have one day full and immediate open access.
1: And Rachel, you said you talk to so many different stakeholders in the field. And what do they see for the future? How do you see we move from uh, from now on?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think everybody's got their own um, ideas and opinions about that. Um, some, It was interesting talking to some stakeholders, um, very knowledgeable people in publishing, who think that actually um, the whole system will completely change in the next few years. Some people think that journals as we know them won't exist you know it'll be preprints only and then maybe the journals kind of give this online stamp of approval like um trust pilot almost or one of those kind of systems um but other people make the argument and I think this is true that journals are not just about um they're not just about a piece of paper or, or you know a digital um sort of stamp of, of approval they are also They also represent communities and especially with, um, the smaller, um, sort of learned societies and, um, different subject areas, university journals, they represent a community of people, um, like-minded people who sort of appreciate that network. So I don't think we will lose the concept of, um, publishing in a journal completely. I think, um, I think it's just going to be a case of everybody becoming hopefully more open-minded and um, more flexible in the way that they go about um, research and publishing.
1: And Robert-Jan, do you think that uh, even if the Plan S is not widely adopted, say, and will have to sort of evolve somehow, it has laid the groundwork for the similar um, initiatives to really take place?
2: Yes, I I think so. Um, um, Again, as I mentioned, the point of no return is there. And whether um, the scientific publishing open access will be in the gold form, or the green form, or the diamond form, uh, that is, I think, not important. The most important thing is that um, we will continue the journey to its full and immediate open access. Uh, And again, uh, everyone needs to remain committed to that. Uh, The journey is uh, on its way, but we are not there yet.
0: I think it's important to say as well that, um, and Robert Jan does sort of point this out in the book that um, obviously the it's it's great to sort of be coordinated, and we want lots of um, different countries to sign up to Plan S so that they can work together on this um, cause. But there are also um, other areas in the world, like Latin America, is really interesting because they have um, been publishing effectively open access. Um, for decades already as a default. Um, they just have a quite a different funding system. And so even countries where they maybe haven't signed up to Plan S, um, they are more often than not very much um, behind Plan S's motives and um, supportive of that cause. So I think even if um, we don't get all 200 and however many countries in the world signed up to Plan S, as long as... Um, as long as everybody is still behind the same um, causes and, and is fighting for the same um, openness, it's still a success.
2: Yeah, and of course, um, uh, what I've mentioned earlier on as well, there is a change necessary in the rewards and recognition system of uh, motion universities in the world, and uh, that will also help, of course, the transition to open access is to get rid of this obsession with the journal impact factor and also reward people for the other important roles of university teaching, uh, knowledge generation, knowledge transition, um, patents filing, startups, uh, scientific support to making. Uh, we need to, of course, change more than ever before the academic culture with regards to rewards and recognition that will also help them, of course, open access to uh, further development.
1: Maybe we can tra- just transition to rainbow publishing.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that would be an interesting one, yeah.
1: So what discoveries in your research, in your journey uh, to writing your book, Plan S for Shock, surprised you the most? Robert?
2: Um, well, I i come across people who are extremely against it because they say, you know, don't spread uh, knowledge through open access uh, in my fields, the medical fields, because it's only confused people. They start then looking into all kinds of uh, scientific articles and they're not they don't they, they understand that and they start to play doctor and this is dangerous for my profession. So in other words, you know, keep the layman away from knowledge. This is something which I found extremely bizarre, that in this age where information, and that's the strength of our age, of the period in which we're living, information is available to everyone, that people still want to confine access to information to the happy few. In this case, the medical profession, that's something which shocked me. Uh, I was very happily surprised by the hundreds of mails I received from individual scientists, um, notably from uh, countries like India, South Africa, Angola, uh, China saying, we are so happy with Plan S because at the moment, uh, our universities in which we are doing our research, don't have money at all for all these scientific journals, traditional journals to pay for the subscriptions. And uh, hopefully one day we can have access to all the journals which we definitely need for our own research, but we can't afford. So they were very emotional of mails I received. And that was the positive sides of uh, the journey. and gave me a lot of encouragement to continue fighting for open access. Uh, The individual scientists notably from the Global South, uh, praising what we are doing and, and helping them to indeed also to, to build a knowledge society and to do their work, which they are doing at the moment of very difficult circumstances. And you can imagine if you are at a university in the Global South, which doesn't have a lot of money and has a small academic library, which can only afford one subscription journal, it's very, very difficult then if you are a researcher there or a young student to do your work. So that kept me going and that kept me motivated to continue with fighting for open access.
1: And Rachel, did you, did you get did you get surprised by something?
0: Yeah, I think um to be honest, the just the the intense politics um, of publishing within academia um surprised me. I already knew to some extent I worked for um, like Robert Jones said, Times Higher Education magazine, which is about academic um, you know, life as an academic. And so I already knew that there was there was sort of um A lot of politics in in the industry, in the sector, but it's amazing when you talk to people about open access, how personal it is to so many people. And I think that drives a lot of um, a lot of the angst about publishing, whether whichever side you land on, there's just a lot of emotion. And that that really surprised me. Um, But a lot of the time, actually, it seemed like there's a lot of misunderstanding in the community. So you know, publishers would say to me, oh, but open access, it doesn't work because of this, this and this. Mm. And it, that wouldn't necessarily, the things that they list, you know, it's just hearsay. It's not necessarily true. And on the other side as well, you know, people had all sorts of um, rumours that they would be spreading about <laughs> about publishers. So I think there's a lot of um, tension in the industry, um, which was really interesting to get a glimpse of when writing the book. Yeah.
1: So you made a very strong case that uh, equitable access to publishing is really important both for researchers, but also for our community. So my question is, how optimistic are you that we will be able to actually adopt this kind of system on a global scale?
2: Um, That's a good question. Uh, in, In Europe, as I said, I, I'm there. We, we are there, and the United States more and more. Um, we are there. Look at the NIH uh, again. Look at Harvard, MIT. Uh, they're really embracing open access big time. Um, Latin America have their own system, as Rachel already pointed out. So the green open access route they notably follow, which is fine for me as well, as long as it's, um, uh, it's all open access. But uh, we still have, of course, a lot of work to do in other parts of the world. Uh, China is an interesting case. They um, made it quite clear in uh, 2018, December, that they were embracing open access, but they want to build up their own open access publishing industry, which is quite interesting. And they're getting more and more into that. Uh, India is an interesting case. So, no, it, it, it's uh, the movement is continuing, but we need dedicated people to uh, really uh, keep on talking about it. And one of those dedicated people is my successor, Johan Rorink. He's now the European Open Access Envoy and does amazing work in order to spread the gospel, the Open Access gospel, uh, and uh, make it clear that uh, we need to continue lining up funding agencies, mobilizing the science community to complete the journey.
1: And Rachel, do you think we will be able to achieve it?
0: Yeah, I do, actually. And... and... I am a lot more optimistic now than when I started out um, researching for this book, actually. I think even in the last five or six, seven years that I've been writing about academia um, in my work, you know, in in, the beginning of of my career, it seemed completely impossible. And it was maybe you'd get a story in the magazine newspapers sort of a couple of times a year about open access um, campaigns but it was really not mainstream news and it's not been that long um, since and and suddenly it is very much um, in the sort of public agenda and the public narrative Um, and like Robert Jan says I think the shift that's happened in Europe is amazing it's really really changed in the last um, couple of years especially so that makes me feel quite positive actually. I think it is very possible that we will have a fully open system um, in the next decade or maybe a bit longer. Oh, that is great to hear.
1: So as YouTube wrote your book, basically virtually, <laughs> so if when you when you meet uh, in the real life, what's gonna be? Is it gonna be a party to celebrate or drinks?
0: <laughs> definitely a drink.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, definitely a drink, a nice dinner. Uh, to celebrate and uh, perhaps, but I have to really, you know, see how I can convince uh, Rachel to think about uh, an update of the book (laughs) in perhaps a year's time. Uh, because there have been so many new developments uh, at the moment. I mentioned Switzerland signing up to Plan S Portugal. We still mention Portugal, by the way, in the book. Other countries are coming in, funding agencies. uh, as are complete new developments on platforms for open access, uh, which we could have covered and should cover in the book. So uh, I think uh, during this nice dinner and drink, I hope I can seduce uh, Rachel to uh, think about perhaps uh, a second edition of the book in the year's time.
0: (laughs) Well, if that happens, I'm very open to the idea of a second book. I think um, we need to be even braver. There is so much happening in academia and so much gossip as well that um, we couldn't possibly publish. But I think, um, yeah, we've given people a little taste of um, what, the, what the world of academia is like in publishing. And uh, yeah, there's plenty more to say. I'll just, I'll just put it that way.
1: Oh, really looking forward to that. Well, this has been a truly fascinating and really insightful discussion into this complex topic. So, could you tell us what are you working on now, Robert?
2: Well, at the University in Eindhoven, uh, we are working uh, a lot at the moment on the new system of rewards and recognition. So, in a way, I'm still dealing uh, with the open access, but then, of course, uh, trying to indeed uh, embed. Uh, open access in the culture of the university by also making clear, and making sure that uh, we work towards new rewards and recognition system. So that's at the moment one of the things I'm doing at uh, the university. Is, uh, besides 20,000 other things, because university Eindhoven University of Technology is in the heart, as I mentioned, of a, of a high-tech system here in Eindhoven, which is booming. So uh, we are expanding our activities. We are growing the number of students. Uh, so we have a lot of challenges, but. Changing the academic culture and try to move towards a new system of rewards recognition is very high on my agenda. And in that way, I'm also still, of course, uh, contributing to the open access movement.
1: And Rachel, what is next for you?
0: Um, well, I've, I've actually written a second book Um <laughs> which i can very much not recommend writing two books during a pandemic um it's quite stressful but um yeah once i finished with plan S for shock um, i was asked to write another book about genomics um so dna sequencing and um yeah research into um, what the human genome can tell us um that's out on the 23rd of june um so i've been doing a lot of work for that um And I think, to be honest, after that's out, I'm just going to have a holiday. (laughs) Another holiday. That sounds amazing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
0: Um, For me, um, I'm on Twitter Um, My name is Rachel Pels and you can find me on Twitter. You can also, if anyone wants to get in touch, um, my email address is just rachelpelsjourno, so j-o-u-r-n-o at gmail.com.
2: And of course, the book is published in open access, so um, with Ubiquity Press, so everyone who is interested to read the book, uh, you know, goes to the website and downloads the book. Uh, It's all in open access and available.
0: Yeah, that's a really important thing to say. I can't believe I put myself first.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining me today.
2: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Great pleasure to be with you. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, thanks for the interesting questions. It's been really fun.